Fort Luke. We're going to finish up and then um, we will start our new series in the book of Malachi next week. And so we'll start Malachi next week and then we'll go from Malachi to Esther. So those are the two books we're going to be studying uh, and then I'll let you know beyond that later. Um, but we're finishing up our series. We've been going through this all fall. We're finishing it up this winter and it's called To Seek and to Save the Son of Man. Luke writes his gospel. Again, I, just as a reminder, Luke writes his gospel. He's saying this is who the Son of Man is, the promised Son that would come that from the seed of Adam that would be born both 100% God, 100% man, come into the world. And he came to do that because he cares about us. He came to seek us. He came to save us because we're lost. And that's exactly what Luke's gospel is all about. And that's what we've been looking at the last several weeks. Uh, last week, we looked at hearts. We looked at the fact that last week, the question that we asked, we asked a question from the passage. We've been taking questions from the passage in Luke that were asked of Jesus or that Jesus asked others. And the question last week was, weren't our hearts ablaze? And it was talking about when Jesus, he has been crucified at the end of the book of Luke. Remember, Jesus has lived a perfect life. He is unjustly tried he is unjustly convicted, wrongly convicted, and he's sentenced to death, death on a cross for pretty much nothing. They kill him on the cross. Three days later, he comes back from the dead, and then last week, we looked at where he appeared, started appearing to people during the time frame between Passover and the Feast of Firstfruits, which we're going to look at today. Jesus was spending that time alive in his body. Eating, we looked at last week, he was eating fish, he was appearing to people, he was saying, I'm real, I'm alive, which means for us, and when we look at last week, that they looked at him being appearing alive and said, wow, our hearts are ablaze by what's going on. And I asked you guys the question, are your hearts ablaze for God? Are your hearts ablaze for him? And we looked at that last week. This week... The question we're going to look at as we wrap up, and it's a great question. It's a, it's a phenomenal question that, that Luke kind of ends his book with, and then he writes the next book, starts the next book, Acts, which we're going to get into this morning. And he asked, this question is asked by his disciples. It's in Acts that is asked. And they say, are you restoring the kingdom at this time? You got to remember, they expected Jesus to be their savior, to save them earthly savior, like, like to deliver them from the mess they were in, the mess they created for themselves, the mess the religious leaders had created, the mess the Romans had created. They were expecting Jesus to come and deliver them from the mess they were in, and then he dies. And they're like, oh my goodness, and they all scatter. And they're questioning, what did I believe? Why did I believe in this guy if he can't give me what I thought I should have or what I thought would happen? And then we find him coming back from the dead, and now they're still asking the question. They're still asking, okay, so that wasn't the first go around. You died, but you came back to life, so now you're going to overthrow the Romans, right? Now you're going to restore the kingdom. You're going to bring heaven to earth, annihilate everybody. We're going to be on thrones. We're going to rule. And so there's still this question of, are you restoring at this time? Here's the deal. For you and I, I've thought about this question this week quite a bit. I had plenty of time because I was with family. And when you're with family, you ask a lot of questions like, 
are you going to restore at this time? Could you please help my family? Could you please help me? Because I need to be restored. It's obvious I still have issues because when I get around them, they all come out, right? Like I got to pray. I got to like, oh my goodness. I'm serious. And so the question you have to ask yourself for 2020, right? For 2020, I want you to ask, what is it that you're expecting God to restore? And what if he doesn't do it in 2020? What if he doesn't come through for you the way you expect him to come through? What if, what if he never comes through on this side of eternity, but it's only on the other side of eternity that you get the fullness that you desire? Is he still worth following? Is he still God? Is he still worth obeying and doing what he asks us to do? Because really, that's going to be the question for us in 2020. It's, it's not rocket science. It's the same question God's people have been asking since the book of Genesis. When's it going to be restored? Well, okay, it's going to be restored under Noah. Nope. As soon as Noah gets out of the ark, he gets drunk, and it's a mess. Like, oh, it's going to be under Moses. Nope. You guys gripe and complain. That's, nope. Oh, it's going to be under David. It's going to be, nope. David commits adultery. People don't listen to him. His sons all hate him and go to war. It's a mess. And all the time throughout history, even today, people are saying, when is God going to restore and everybody wants to say, you ready for this? At this time. We've elected two presidents because we're trying to get restoration of some idea that we have and we want it at this time. And this is the guy that's going to do it for us, so let's put him in power. And then we find out he's just as big an idiot as the last guy. He's just as big an idiot as I am. Like, he's no better than me. He's just as human. He's just as, wow. Now what do we do? Okay, we get a new guy, right? Let's get another person. And all the time, we're not recognizing that God has a way of restoring things. And quite honestly, it's typically not our way. The way he restores things would not be the way we would choose to restore things, i.e. dying, laying down his life and coming back to life. No one saw that coming. Like, that was like, whoa. And that's exactly what he did. So let me ask you, what are you expecting? What are you praying for? Look, God says to present our requests before him. He wants us to hear his heart and he wants to hear our heart. He wants a relationship. We don't have to come to him and not tell him what we want him to restore. We need to tell him, but we need to be sure that those things we're telling him to restore are in line with what he wants restored. And there are people running around our world today promising things to people, telling them there's restoration. You're going to get your thing in 2020, and it's a lie. Most of it is lies, and I'll show you when we look in the scriptures here in just a moment. So as we jump into 2020, let's start with Luke 24:44. We looked at this last week at the end of the message. Jesus told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance, repentance, that means a change of direction, a change of thinking, that I thought the Messiah was going to do this, I thought the Messiah was going to be this, I thought he was going to do these things, and then I had to change direction because I only had half the picture, Right? And forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name, that's in Jesus' name, to all the nations, that's in Yahweh who saves name, right? Yahweh of the Old Testament, who is the Savior, that's what Jesus' name means. 
Jesus' name in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. Then it says, would be proclaimed all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And remember, we looked at this last week. God was, Jesus was explaining the scriptures to them, and they were coming alive. Listen, when I came to know Christ, when I finally placed my faith in who Jesus was, I had grown up in church, missed five Sundays. Some of you know this story. I've shared it before. But when I finally got it, my freshman year of college, when I was at my lowest point, and I didn't want to live anymore, and my kingdom that I was building, I saw was a mess, and I knew I had to repent, and I had to think differently and go a different direction, because my way wasn't working. And I cried out to God and said, God, if you exist, help me. I need forgiveness. I need hope. I need you. When I came to that moment, and then right few, just a day after that, when someone sat down with me and opened the scriptures, it was Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It was the first time. Listen, I'd grown up in church for 18 years. 18 years, and the scriptures never seemed alive to me. They were just words on a page. But in that moment, when I had finally decided, I'm done, I repent, I want you, I don't want anything else, I'm done with it all. When I came to that place, that's when my eyes were opened, and for the first time, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the Bible came alive to me. And I'm like, this is real. He's real. These are his words. These aren't made up. These aren't written by some guy who had some good thoughts. This is the word of God, and it transformed me in that moment in my dorm room. And here's the beautiful part of what happened. As I walked away from that moment on cloud nine and went back upstairs and found my Bible and began to like think and look through scriptures, everything started coming alive for the first time. The story of Joseph, I saw differently. The story of Moses, I saw differently. Everything began to look different. It was like, oh, I've, I saw this as a moral book. That if you did all these things and believed all these things and, and, and got the right people in your life, then you would get the outcome you wanted. You'd get the earthly results. That's what I was taught. And then I realized Jesus did everything he was supposed to do, picked the perfect people he was supposed to pick, and one still betrayed him and he got killed, crucified. He did everything perfectly because, look, this world kills perfect Always. This world hates perfect. Listen, you don't like having a perfect brother or sister. You know that family member, right? They're just perfect, right? They, they have everything going for them, and they're humble, and they're just like, you're like, I don't want to hate them, but I do, and I don't know why. And there's this, like this, there's this tug in your heart where you're like, I shouldn't have these feelings, but I do. Why? I just, ah. Uh, and it, listen, it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with your heart. It has everything to do with you and the way that you seeing life. You have to stop seeing life that way and then begin to see that, oh, they're not everything that I portray them as. They're not all that I thought they were. Only Christ is. And they may walk more closely with him than they do, but we all go through trials and suffering and temptations and problems. And that's exactly what Jesus is explaining to them. Then he goes on and he says, and look, I'm sending you what my father promised. This is beautiful. He's talking about the promise of the Old Testament. He's talking about that the feasts that were, that were done, the, the Day of Atonement and, and, and the feasts that were, that were done all the way through the Jewish calendar, okay? He was saying that there's one thing that hasn't been done yet. We've done Passover, but, but we haven't done first fruits yet. The Father's going to send 
in accordance with his way of doing things, the Holy Spirit. And he looks at him and says, as for you, stay in the city until you're empowered from on high. God looks at his disciples. Jesus looks at his disciples, and this is what he says. You love this. Wait. That's your favorite word, isn't it? Right? Wait. See, that's, are you restoring it this time? Just, just wait. Oh, man, that's like, that'll get you a discussion every time in my house, right? What do you mean wait? How long? When? I mean, give me an answer. Let me know a deadline. Let me, so why? So that we can judge it. So that I can hold you and say, uh-uh, you, uh See, we want to be God. We want to be in the position of judgment. We just don't want to live faithfully and trust that God will bring what he needs to bring when he brings it. We want to plan and we want to know the end of the plan so that we can lay out our lives and get what we want versus saying, I already know heaven is the end plan. I'm not going to get anything I really want in this life because it's all going to be taken from me when I die. So I might as well just trust that and not try to live for everything here and all these things. Does that mean we don't plan? Nope, we're going to see that in just a second. Because Jesus tells them, here's a plan. Here's your plan. Stay in Jerusalem. Worship together. Talk about me. Go back through the scriptures now that I've explained the scriptures to you and research them again. And they're going back to, wow, look at that. That's what he said. Oh, that's different. Never saw it that way. See, that's what they're doing while they're waiting. They're not just waiting being like, well, we just got to wait here and do nothing. And I guess someday something will happen. That's not what they're doing. They're taking care of one another. They're praying for one another. When he's appearing to people, the people are like, we got to find those disciples because I think I just saw Jesus. And so it says over 500 people saw him. And so God's building his kingdom. People are coming because they're trying to figure out what is going on. Someone just came back from the dead. And he says, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. He, he lifts up his hands. He goes, I, I love you guys. Now, the last time they saw him lift up his hands were to be nailed to a cross. That he was nailed to the cross. He lifted up his hands and he was nailed to the cross. That's the last time they saw his hands lifted. And can you imagine him standing there and lifting up his hands and you not having the image of, oh, my goodness. And you'd see the scars. You'd see the piercings when he lift up his hands. He says, I bless you. I've died for you. I've paid the price then he looks and he says, and he left them and was carried up into heaven. They literally watched him ascend to heaven. Before he would like show up and then disappear and on the earth. But now they're actually watching him ascend. Now I don't know if his body burned up when it hit the atmosphere. I don't know what happened. Right? See, here's the deal. God is outside of time and space and science. He made it. So he can tinker with it. Because he made it. He's outside of it. Now, does he submit himself to it for our benefit? That's exactly what Jesus did when he became human and died on the cross. But he doesn't have to. He is outside of time and space. That's what makes him God. And then it says, after worshiping him, after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They watched him ascend and they know that this is it. He told us he's going to go. He's gone. Now we're waiting. We're, listen, we're still waiting 2,000 years later. The question is, are you worshiping him while you wait? That's the question. Are you looking for something to restore it and you're crossing your arms saying, well, God, unless you do this, unless you prove yourself, then you don't get my worship. You don't get my, you don't get my affection. You, nope. 
I, I need you to do this. I need you to heal this person. I need you to do that. I need you to provide this. I need, and you just cross your arms. Or are you so overwhelmed with the reality of the world we live in and the reality of eternity and what Jesus said and experienced that you're like, I just have to worship him. I got to focus on him. And then it says they were continually in the temple complex praising God. They didn't leave church. They didn't start a church out in the woods. They got back in the temple complex. Why? Because that's where believers were. People that believed in the Old Testament Yahweh, and then they looked at him and said, oh yeah, that Old Testament Yahweh, he saved us in Yahweh saves who is Jesus. So they would go back in the temple and they'd be like, oh, you guys, listen, you see, you see those walls? Oh, those walls represent something. Because see, in heaven there won't be walls. You see those gates? Those gates represent the entrance into God's. Do you see the, the Holy of Holies? Remember the curtain was torn into? Like they're explaining every day. They're going in and explaining to everyone around them what everything they see means. And they'd never seen it before. They'd never, because see, everybody was going to temple at that time trying to get something. It was trading. Well, if I do the right thing and I make the right sacrifice, then God will give this to me. And that's the way the rulers taught them, just like people teach people today. And these guys are going in saying, we got to tell you what we saw. He died. It's over. This temple, it's going to be torn down. Like, this is nothing compared to the glory. And everything in that temple is all about him. Every bit of it. All this is about him. It's not about the temple. It's not about us. It's not about being Jewish. It's not about being Gentile. None of that. It's about him. And that's what they're doing. They're not sitting around waiting, doing nothing. They're, they're worshiping. They're making him known. They're going to work and they're singing praises of what they got to see. Acts. So Luke writes the first book. And in Acts 1, this is what it says. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theopolis. Remember, in Luke's first book, Luke the Gospel of Luke, he says, I write to you, Theopolis, about the things. He says, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. That's what we just read at the end of Luke, right? Till the day he was taken up. After he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom. What 40 days? It was the 40 holy days between Passover, okay? It was the 40 days between Passover, it's actually 49, 50 days, and, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was those 40 days until Pentecost. God is following a plan. It's not that he's not following a plan. He's like, well, you just got to wait. You'll never know, and I'll just surprise you, boo. Like, that's not what God does. He's not trying to play hide and seek with us. He wants us to know him, know his things, and know his heart. Here's the thing. We love to try to get answers to the things that we don't have answers to, and we try to ignore the things we do have answers to. That's what we try to do all the time. These guys are doing what they know they have an answer to. They're being faithful. They're being steadfast for 40 days. They're expecting something to happen on first fruits. They're expecting that something's going to happen. Because remember, the festival of first fruits was that time when the barley harvest would come in. And you know what it was? It was a wave offering. You'd bring the first of your grain in and you'd wave it before God and worship and say, this is all yours. Everything I have from this point forward is your fruit. It's about you. And so I wave the first fruit. I bring it off the field. I stop my life. I don't harvest the rest of it. I stop 
And I wave it before God as a family. We're worshiping, waving, saying, God, you are glorious. You're awesome. And we're trusting you for the rest of the fruit of our lives as long as we're alive. That's the significance of this moment. Jesus has been brought back to life, taken up into heaven, and they're having to decide, do we truly trust him with the rest of our lives? It goes on. Acts 4.1, while he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. We just read that. But to wait for the Father's promise. That's what we just read. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Listen, this isn't something you have to try to get. It's not like they're trying to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It just came on them. And then it says, look at this. So when they had come together, they asked him, here it is, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or periods the Father has set by his own authority. It is not for you to know. Listen, there is nothing that drives us more batty than that. I got to know. So I can do the right things to get what I expect and what I know I should have. And God's like, that's not trusting me. That's trusting you. That's trusting your own understanding, not me. How about you just trust in the relationship that we have and worship me in the midst of not knowing and and doubts and pain and struggle. Just just worship me through it because that's what Jesus did. And that, look, he's saying, it's not for you to know. Listen, when you see people, listen up, when you see people come out with a confidence that says, you can know, and then they have all these prophecy, and this is going to happen, and that, burn the book. Just burn it. Just set it on fire, get rid of it. But those are the best sellers of our day. Y2K? You know Go back to the year 2000, well, 1999, and look at the top books on the bestsellers list in 1999. You want to know what all those books were about? End times. How the world was going to end, how America was going to collapse, how all this was going to go down. That's the bestsellers in 1999, Christian and non-Christian, at the top of the list were about knowing the times and the periods. You know how much of it happened? Zero. None of it happened. Not a bit of it. They said the computer systems were going to crash. They said that all this bad was going to happen. And you want to know what happened? None of it. None of it happened. It it didn't happen. Now, does that mean we shouldn't plan, that we shouldn't talk about it? No, you should be prepared. You should plan. He goes on and he says this. In Proverbs 11, 14, this is what it says. Without guidance, without vision, people fall. But with many counselors, there is deliverance. Without guidance, people fall. But with many counselors, there is deliverance. Think about that for a minute. When you're trying to make decisions and figure things out, do you try to be sure you have plenty of counselors around you, specifically and especially counselors that know Jesus, that are going to lead you and open the scriptures with you to give counsel? How many many people do you know that will open the scriptures with you to counsel you? They know the scriptures well enough to say, I think this is what you should do based on scripture. Versus, well, this is how I feel. This is how it worked out for me. Look at my life on this side of eternity on the earth. Don't you want these things? Now just do it the way I did it. See, that's what we love. 
Because that lets us have confidence that it's going to work out the way we want. Versus saying, I'm going to go to God for guidance because I know that eventually, here's the deal. That guy that has that great diet, that has that great system, you know what's going to happen to him? He's going to die. Something's going to get him. So you can do the diet, you can do the deal, you can do all of it. And in the end, he's going to be in the same ground you're in. He's going to be dust just like you're dust. He's going to fail. But when there's many counselors, when you have people around you that are helping you walk through this, here's what the many counselors do. Good counselors will remind you, you ready for this, of bigger things. A good counselor will never give you what you want. If you go to a counselor and you're like, well, this is what I want. I want him to change and I want him to do that and I want to do this. And I want... A good counselor will be like, hold on. We got a lot of work to do. <laughs> and they will back the truck up and they will go back to the past and they'll start digging into things you don't want to dig into and you have to make a decision. Do I want to go back to them? Because that was, I don't want to, do, I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. I go find another counselor because that, that's hard. I don't want to go through that. See, but God is that good of a counselor. He knows every bit of our past. And when we begin to get close to him, he starts to peel the layers of our lives off lovingly to show us how much he loves us in spite of our sin, to show us how he wants to change us in the midst of our mess. And, and he shows us that because he's the greatest counselor. And here's the great thing about our God versus the other gods. Our God is a counselor in three persons. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unified around counseling us to their glory. See, that's the beauty. The, the reason we have family, the reason why there's this interconnectedness in our world wasn't by accident. It's the character of God. It's who he is as one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He originally was that way, and we see the reflection of it. And people say, well, I just don't understand the Trinity. Why? You want to know why you have such a hard time with the Trinity? Because you can't stand to know there's not one boss at the top. Because it bothers you that you're not going to be the one boss at the top. It bothers you that there'd be three bosses that always agree and always do things perfectly together because you're like, ooh, I want to be the guy that like knows all the answers and, and, like, and like leads everybody else. I don't want to be like, like equal. See, that's the beauty of this. And, and it goes on, it says this in Hebrews. Now faith, faith is the reality of what is hoped for. Again, what do you hope for? What are you hoping God will restore in 2020? What are you hoping for? He says, faith is the reality of what's hoped for. Listen, if you're not hoping for eternity and the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ and to see him come back and to see lives transformed and to see his glory go out over the earth, you have a short-sighted hope and good luck with that. But if that's your hope, man, God will give that to you little by little each day as he reveals himself to you. And he says, the proof of what is not seen. For our ancestors won God's approval by it. The reason we have the scriptures is because there were guys like Abraham who had no children, 90 years old, and believed that God was going to make him a man of many nations with no kids, with a barren wife who's 90. Guys, that's not small faith. He picked up his family and moved them by faith, believing that God was going to provide an heir. And at one point, Abraham decided God wasn't coming through in time. 
I can't wait for this. Sarah decided, we can't wait for this. And so Sarah told Abraham, hey, let's get a slave. Let's get Hagar. You sleep with her, and, and then God will have an heir. Have an heir that can, and also an heir, that'll go on for eternity. They couldn't wait for Isaac to be born, for God to miraculously give them a son. And to this day, we still have a war going on on this earth between the sons of Ishmael who traced their lineage back to Islam and the sons of Isaac who traced themselves in Judaism and Christianity. And the Bible says those two sons will be at war until Christ comes back and he establishes his kingdom. It's a thousands of thousands of thousands of year war because Abraham chose to not wait. Listen, when we don't wait, The consequences can be costly. Is there forgiveness? Absolutely. Is God's glory still made known through Abraham? Absolutely. There are consequences. And Abraham lived in those consequences and we're still living in them to this day. And that's why we need his forgiveness. That's why we need to have the hope that he'll forgive when we can't see it. So what do we do while we wait? Look at what 2 Timothy 2.1 says. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in the Messiah who is Yahweh saves. That's what Christ Jesus means. He says, be strong in the grace. What's grace? Grace is unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You can't get it. It can only be given. Again, I give this illustration all the time, the perfect illustration of grace. I'm driving my brand new sports car. I don't have one, probably never will. But I'm driving my brand new dream sports car. You're driving my old 93 pickup truck that the wheel fell off of. You bought it from the junkyard, fixed it up, and it's still like bad as it was. And you crash into my new sports car. Totally your fault. You run the red light. You don't care. You smash into me. We both get out of the car. Justice says, you're an idiot. You're paying for your car and my damages and anything else you did. Mercy is I get out of my car and realize, oh my gosh, that's my old truck. You must be in bad shape to have to drive that thing. I feel bad for you. Mercy is you just go ahead and cover that old truck. It's dead. But you, you, you just take care of your damages and I'll just take care of my damages. That's mercy. That's having mercy on your fault. Grace is me getting out of the car and saying, here's the deal. If you'll lay your life down for others, if if you'll give your life and believe that that I'm God, which I'm not, but, but if you'll do that, then here's what I'll do. I'll pay for all your damages. I'll buy you a brand new sports car. I'll have grace on you. You don't have to pay for anything. I got it covered. Because I have all the resources and I see you have nothing. That's grace. And that does not happen in our world. And sometimes it shouldn't happen because it would be a travesty of justice. But with Jesus, it's not a travesty of justice because what Jesus did is he paid the penalty for us. He didn't let it slide. He didn't let justice slide. He said, I'll pay for it. He went to jail. He paid the price. That's the beauty of grace. He says, that's what you have to remember. You didn't do this. Listen, if you know you didn't do it, then you stop asking for stuff you shouldn't have. (laughs) Your heart starts to change because you're like, I don't deserve anything. So God, whatever you give me, I'll be content with and I'm grateful for. And help me to know how to use it. Help me to know how to be about your glory. And I want more resources for your kingdom. So if you want me to get more resources, I'll do that. I'll plan. I'll I'll get more resources because I want to be a blessing to others. I want to show your grace to other people. Then he says, look, 
And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, that's what Jesus just said, right? What I taught you and the many witnesses, commit to faithful men or women who will be able to teach others also. We're supposed to be passing down this teaching. And then he says, share in suffering. This is the next thing he says. He says, look, if you're going to trust in God's grace and you're going to be my witness and you're going to be faithful to obey God, you know what's going to happen to you? The same thing that happened to Jesus. It's no different. But we, many Christians in our world, especially the Western world, think it's strange when we suffer. What? Listen, for most of human history, the norm for God's people was persecution and suffering. The norm. When you look at all of the history that we have of God's people, the norm for them was to be persecuted, to be, to be brutalized. That's the normal. It is weird for God's people not to be slaughtered by his enemy. He goes on and he says, consider what I say for the Lord. Look at this will give you understanding in everything. That's what we just read. He came, he explained the scriptures, and he gave them understanding. Do you want understanding? Do you want to understand what God wants to restore? Like truly understand it. To read the Bible and say, wow, he's going to restore the whole earth. He's going to be one nation. He's going to restore Jerusalem. He's going to restore things. Wow. And he goes on and says this in James. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit and be with family and open presents. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. You have no idea. I told the story last week of a family in our community whose daughter died and they have no idea why. She took a nap and didn't wake up. Gone. 19 years old. Gone. You have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. What's interesting is to watch some of her dad's posts that he's been posting about, I understand heaven differently now. I understand living for things differently than I did a week ago. Because you don't know what time you're going to have left. I want to live for the right things. Things that make God known. Because when that happens to you, you realize that you don't have tomorrow. What will your life be? For you're like smoke that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Repeat that with me. If the Lord wills. Say it again. If the Lord wills. That's it. If he wills. When we pray for people, we should tell him what our will is. And then say, Lord, if that's your will, we, we embrace it. But we'll take whatever you give us, because you're God and we're not. If you will. We got people running around today in churches and pastors telling people that if they claim certain scriptures and claim certain things, that they can make God do things. That is not a good teaching. It is actually a very scary teaching. Because look at what it says. Look. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. When you hear somebody that says, this is God's will, and this is what you should do, and here it is, and, and when you find somebody like that, you can know they're arrogant and they're evil. Because that's what James says. It's right there. It's right there. 
We should open the scriptures and say, this is how I understand God's will. Here, let me show you some more scriptures. This is what I understand. If you find other scriptures that go against, let me know. But, but here's my understanding of the heart of God and who he is and what he's done in the past and what he says he's going to do in eternity. Like, here's my understanding. But if I'm looking at you and saying, if you don't do that, then I'm, you cry. No. If the Lord wills, and if you boast, if you're one of those people that, well, I got it right, and look at what I've done, and you follow my plan, be careful, because you are treading right on the edge of evil, James says. And he goes on, he says, so it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. I love this. Are you restoring at this time? And Jesus' answer is, just do simple. Just be obedient. Is it a sin? What's truly a sin is not not knowing. And we got people running around saying, if you don't know, then you're in sin. No, you just don't know. And it's okay not to know. But if you do know something, you're to obey it. And if you aren't obeying it, then that's sin. And we need to be concerned for you because we don't want you to hurt yourself and we don't want you to hurt other people and we don't want you to hurt the glory of God. So we're going to tell you, hey, this is sin. And God's patient with you. Remember, it started out with grace in 2 Timothy. And And I don't want you to boast about your sin. I want you to boast about him. And so we walk people through it. Listen, we should be people that want to do good, but not for a benefit on earth. We should want to do good because God is good. And if I want to be like him and do what he wants, then I'll be good. And I don't have the power to be good. That's why he told them to wait in Jerusalem. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know what a witness does? A witness tells the truth and lives the truth. That's what they do. Their lifestyle is a witness of what they saw and what they believe, and what they believe is coming. Their words are a witness of what they say and do and what they believe is coming. A witness just tells what is true. That's what a witness does. It's exactly what he says. You're going to receive power. And when that power comes on you, you are going to become an obedient, vocal witness for how great I am, God says. You're going to tell people how awesome it is to know me and how awesome it is to go through this life knowing it's a mess and you've got a home in heaven and you're waiting for it and you can't wait for it and you're not attached to anything too tightly here. It's all like here, it's yours, whatever you want, because it's not going to go with you. He goes on and he says, after he said this, he was taken up as they were watching. Again, Luke is repeating himself. And a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. Suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into heaven? Listen, this is it. Why do we stand around looking and saying, God, I just don't know why you don't restore things. I just don't know why you, what? They're looking up into heaven and Jesus just told them, you are to go, wait, and be my witnesses. Go. And they're standing on the mountain going, wow, just wait here. This is awesome. And he has to send two angels to kick them off. Get, go, do what he's asked you to do. You don't just stand around and be like, well, I just got to wait for Jesus to come back. I don't know. Just try to eat some chips, wait, you know. Like, it's something. No, you have a job to do. And then he says, This Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. He says, this Jesus you saw going in, he's coming back the same way. He's going to come out of the heavens one day, and it's going to be shocking. And we look at that and go, I just don't know if I can believe that. Really? So you can't believe this could happen, but you can believe that an asteroid may come out of the heavens right now. 
and hit our planet and destroy us at any moment. At any moment, you could walk out the door, smiling, having a great service, worshiping, enjoying yourself, walk out the door, and all of a sudden the sky turns dark and you see fire coming through the heavens. You're like, that's not good. And it literally hits the earth and we're all done. You can believe that, but you can't believe that God himself, if there is a God, could come back and set the world on fire. It's not that hard to believe. He goes on and he says, I love this. He goes on and he says, when the day of Pentecost has arrived, that's the day of first fruits. Pentecost is what the church, early church decided to call it. It's 50 days, Pentecost, 50 days from the end of the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. It's 50 days. You count 50 days. Here it is. There it is. That's Pentecost. That's what they were doing. They had been counting this since the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy, it told them how to celebrate Pentecost, how to go from Passover, how to count the days, how to count the Omar, how to build down to the day when you got your first fruits and you waved them and said, thank you for saving us. Thank you for providing for us. It's all yours anyway. Thanks for giving us this much. That's what you do on Pentecost. And then it says, they were all together in one place. This is key. They weren't all different places being like, well, I just got to wait for Jesus in the woods. Hopefully he comes back. Huh? No, they were together. They understood that, that it's, you've got to be with other believers. And then it says, suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire were divided and appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I don't know if that's their shoulder or on their head. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them the ability for speech. Listen. You can be filled with the Spirit, and God may not give you the ability to speak in other languages. Because it's his decision whether he wants to give the ability or not. That's what it says right there. As the Spirit gave them ability. I wonder if one of the disciples didn't get it. Right? Like they're all in a room together, and everybody's got all these, you know, speaking in tongues. And then there's John sitting over there being like, I, I'm not saying, I don't have anything. I'm not speaking. I don't kind of waiting I don't know what language I'm just kind of here I'm just going to praise God this is different never seen this before like I, I don't know if that happened it could have we don't know now there's a teaching out there that says if you're filled with the spirit you will speak in tongues you're no not necessarily if God wants you to you will he will but that's not the sign of being filled with the spirit the sign of being filled with the Spirit is submitting to God, waiting for Him, trusting Him every day, saying, God, you're enough today. It's about your grace. That means you are filled with the Spirit. That's what it means. It's not this one-time moment, you get the Spirit, and now you're just perfect. That's not what it means. And he goes on, it says this. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember, the Jews had been scattered. They had different languages, just like today. There are Christians all over the world that speak all different languages. And it says, every nation. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused. Look at this. Because each one heard them speaking in his own language. This was not a confusing or scary event. This was not out of control. This was people walking and saying, I am hearing Egyptian right now I, with a Jewish accent, with a Galilean accent. That's weird. I got to go find out what this is. I hear someone speaking Arabic right now. What? I got to go find, who's speaking Arabic? And all these people were drawn. It wasn't confusion. It was clarity. 
The gospel was being spoken to them clearly, and they were like, I hear clearly. That's weird. And so they come and they say they were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't we all, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, how is it that each one can hear in our own native language? We hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? But some sneered and said, they're full of new wine. They're drunk. Now, if they were acting crazy, right, like, then yeah, they, yeah, they may be drunk, that's, that's not normal. But they weren't acting crazy. They were simply speaking the scriptures, speaking about God, and it was coming out of their mouth in another language, and someone else affirmed that they heard that language. That's what this was. Don't get confused. That's exactly what we see happening here. And the reason for it, are you ready for this? It's first fruits. It's God saying, I'm going to give you a taste, just a little bit, of the fruit of all the nations in this moment. I'm going to give you a taste of what it's going to be like in heaven one day when we all stand around the throne and everyone's speaking in their own culture, in their own language, and we all understand it. You're going to understand Mandarin someday. You may not know it now. You're going to understand German someday. I have no idea. I tried to understand it when I was there. Very difficult. You're going to understand Russian. You're going to, and we're all going to just be like, that's awesome what they're saying. We're all going to understand each other. There's going to be no barrier and God is saying, look, I, I want to break down the barriers of relationships. I want to come through and restore, but there's still those that are going to not believe. There's still going to be those that say, you're full of new wine, you're drunk, I, have, I want nothing, I, I have no desire for you. Does that make sense? That, that's exactly what this says. There are going to be those that will not believe. Then it says, but Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, men of Judah and all residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. <laughs> like we haven't been drinking all night. On the contrary, this is what was spoken. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, Yahweh says, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Master. I love this. Peter says, let me bring clarity to what all you're hearing right now. Let me tell you what this is all about. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's not about getting some special power. It's simply about making him known clearly. That's it. That's what it's about. It's all about Jesus. Every bit of it. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes to glorify Christ. That's why the Holy Spirit comes every time. The Holy Spirit does not come to glorify itself. That's not the role of the Holy Spirit according to Scripture. When the Holy Spirit comes, it's trying to reveal who Jesus is, not trying to show off and say, I'm the Spirit, here I am. That is not biblical. And that's how we know. Because it says it right there. Because Peter says, I got to clarify what's going on here because some people are thinking we're crazy. We're not. We're just trying to make Jesus known to a bunch of people who don't know him in a bunch of languages we don't even know. This is crazy. Because there were many people who were murdered because they took this verse out of context and went to foreign countries without studying the language of that country in the early 1900s during the Pentecostal movement and they got slaughtered in those lands because they didn't know the languages and they did wrong things and those people killed them. Because they thought they would just show up and then miraculously be able to speak the language of the village they popped into. Because they were taught that garbage. It's garbage. Can God do that? Absolutely. But to demand and boast that he do it? That's arrogance. And it's evil. 
He goes on and he says this. When they had heard this, they came under deep conviction. And Peter, Peter preaches a sermon right there in those verses. And then they said, when they heard the sermon, which he explained all the scriptures to them, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, look at this, what must we do? Well, if this is true, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized. Show that you believe by going through the waters, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, then come back to me, and then we'll see if you get the Spirit. There'll be a, No, at the moment you come to surrender your life to Jesus, Pentecost is over. It already happened. Now God is pouring out his Spirit on us, and he wants us to have it. He's not holding it back from us. He wants us to know him. And we got churches running around saying, oh, it's holding back on you. God's holding back on you. No, he's not. He's a good father who wants us to have the fullness of who he is. He's not holding back. So when we come to know him and we repent, God says, I want you to know. He gives us his fullness. I want to come in with everything I've got. And he says, for the promise is for you and for your children. For all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified strongly and urged him, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. The generation you're in is corrupt. Be saved from it. Don't get caught up in it. You're not of this world. You're of another world. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. 3,000. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. As you think about 2020 and we wrap up, if you've come to know Christ, you've been baptized, you've surrendered your life to him, God gives us his restoration plan right here. It's real simple. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What? What's the apostles' teaching? Oh, that's right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Acts, Romans. Oh, oh, we have the apostles' teaching. Devote yourself to it. That's why we preach through the scripture here. I don't want you to be devoted to FX Church. I don't want you to be devoted to Matt Shockney and how he interprets scripture. I want you to be devoted to the Bible. I want you to know the holy scriptures. I want you to know the God behind them because it's his gift to us. And I want you to devote yourself the best you can. And when you fail to get back up, dust yourself off, repent, know there's forgiveness, and do it again. That's what he says, devote yourselves. And then he says, to the fellowship. So it's not just you with your Bible reading about the apostles. You need other believers, a fellowship of believers in your life so that you get it right. Then he says, and devote yourself to the breaking of bread. That's communion, that's the Lord's Supper, but that's also any time we break bread together, any time we celebrate the goodness of God. Devote yourselves to being in one another's homes, to eating meals together, to caring about one another. Then he goes on and he says, and to the prayers, to the prayers. Notice he just doesn't say any prayers. It's the prayers, There are prayers in Scripture that we need to be praying, not prayers that we just bounce off the ceiling because we don't know what God's will is. Well, I want this, and I want that, and I want this. How about you just go to the Bible and look and see what the apostles wrote that they wanted and see what Jeremiah wrote that he wanted and see what Moses wrote that he wanted and pray those prayers. Because if you do that, it'll change you. 
It'll change the way you see everything. Because you'll not start praying prayers that are selfish for your own desire. You'll start praying prayers that really focus on wanting to see people repent, wanting to see them follow him, wanting them to understand the word, to be committed to a fellowship, to, to be in unity. That's what it does. And right after this, I'm not, I didn't put it on here. Right after this, it's proved in the way they gave to one another, what they did with the resources they owned. In the next passage, it said they shared things in common. And what you do with the resources that passes through your hand reveals if you're really truly devoted, if you really truly are committed to the fellowship, if you really truly believe that the bread that God gives you is enough, if you really believe that you can pray to him and he'll give you what you really need, not just what you want. See, this book is amazing. It hasn't changed in thousands of years. The question is, will you choose to seek? Will you choose to seek and will you choose to save? Will you choose to be the voice like these apostles were to us as they come to the end of Luke? Will you choose to, to live your life waiting, telling people about him, about how you're waiting and about how the fullness of him is going to come one day? And if it doesn't, that's okay because once you're there, you're gonna have the fullness of him. So either way, I get the fullness of him. And that's what I'm waiting for. I'm not waiting for anything else. That's it. And I'm going to try to structure my life in a way that does that. Listen, your goals for 2020 should be real simple. And we're going to do this through the year. There's four T's. Your treasure, your time, your talent, and your testimony. Your treasure? What is it that you truly treasure? How do you spend your time? Because that will tell you what you really treasure. How do you... Deal with your talents, your gifts and abilities because that'll show you how you spend your time and what you truly treasure. And finally, what stories are you telling? Do you have any stories to tell about the greatness of God or your stories like stories from 20 years ago about how God was good to you 20 years ago? It's not wrong to tell that story, but how about God being good to you now that you're, you're experiencing him weekly, daily, monthly? Like, like that's what God desires for you is to seek him to know that he has saved you because of the trust you've placed in him because he is the son of man. He is who he says he is. And when we do that and we look towards that 2020 vision, right? Isn't that great, 2020 vision? Everybody said that Barbara Walters should do the dropping of the ball. Have you seen that? So that she could say, hi, I'm Barbara Walters and this is 2020. Like, it's, anyway, okay. So you gotta make a decision about 2020. Are you gonna just try to restore things that are never gonna, are you gonna be focused on things that, aren't going to be restored on this side of eternity? Or are you going to focus on things that will be restored one day forever? That, that's the decision I have to make in 2020. It's, it's how I look at my calendar. And as we're looking at preaching through the scriptures, as we're looking at, at looking at the book of Malachi and the treasures, we're doing the book of Malachi because the book of Malachi talks about what the people of God were treasuring. We're going to do the book of Esther because the book of Esther is the story of someone who used her talent. She didn't have much of it. She was just beautiful. She used her beauty for the glory of God. And she used her obedience to obey her father-in-law, Mordecai, to obey her father, Mordecai. That, that's it. That's Esther. And we're going to work through Scripture looking at time, talent, or treasure, time, talent, and our stories. And hopefully by the end of 2020, you're at a place where you're equipped to go out and tell better the testimonies and the story of God like you've never been able to do it before. But I can't do that for you. It's a decision you have to make.